Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 127 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Hello. All right, so let's just, you know, get the elephant out of the bag. Is that what you say? Cat out of the bag? Elephant in the room? What? Uh, uh, Sort of. Doing great. What? Um, I have a sinus infection, if you can't tell from my melodious voice, but this is four days into the Z-Pack, into the steroids and, and antibiotics. The past few days, I've had very little voice and I've had to whisper and I have been saving my voice for this podcast. So you're welcome. And wow. you get what you get and you don't get upset. <laughs> you just tell our listeners that you've been saving yourself for them. <laughs> yeah, you can say that. She hasn't even been reading to Maggie. It's been actually rough because Maggie does not understand why mommy doesn't have a voice. Although she, she, I did say I lost mm. my voice and she say, I help you find it. Oh, what an adorable thing to say. Um, That's very cute. Dylan also has the science infection, but he didn't lose his voice like me. Yeah, because I'm cool. Wow. Is this a bad time to say that I've been sick as well? Yeah. Oh, there you go. Something's going I around. I didn't go to the doctor, so I don't know what it is, but I've been pretty cruddy all week. I'm healthy as a freaking horse. I'm coming at you. 110% Pejos. This <laughs> yeah. voice has been all over the shop. I've been wow. using it all day long. Wow. All day long. Um, but, you know, we, ha- we have a backup because a few months ago, Dylan thought it would be really funny to feed our voices into an AI that oh. can then talk like us. And it actually sounds a lot like me. Yeah, Bailey's is pretty good. It's pretty disconcerting. In fact, here, you can listen to it now. You can't handle the truth. Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You, you, Lieutenant Weinberg, I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago. I mean, I think that's pretty good, kind of. It. I think it does sound like me. It is good. I think Dylan ended up doing me and Andrew as well, but they weren't quite as good because we have like more um, unique personalities, I want to say. Wow. <laughs> the episode clips I was using was like Bailey doing a lot of like storytelling. So that's why it's able to mm. get angry really fast. Because uh, she gets so angry. <laughs> I know, exactly. I get so angry on the podcast. That is yeah. Bailey's niche on this podcast, the angry one. Um, but uh, although Andrew's not as healthy and Toby is healthy, how healthy is your shame quotient? Did anybody pick up any shame? Oh, my shame is as healthy as me, which is two books healthy. <laughs> Ooh. Yes. It was recently my birthday, and uh, my lovely mother-in-law and sibling uh, got me a gift certificate, basically like they just sent me money to spend on books because they live in England and it was more difficult for them to get like, you know, gift certificates to local bookstores. So any local bookstore is my gift certificate area. <laughs> um, but I was home in the Bay Area recently and I went to a bookstore that I'd highly recommend, Orinda Books in yeah. Orinda, California. Yeah, Dylan, represent. And I got two books. I'm going to get some more. But for right now, I just picked up a cool copy of David Copperfield by, have you heard of him? Charles Dickens. For a second, no. I thought when you were saying a cool, you're going to like describe what the book is like. This is a cool book I just discovered. Have you heard of it? <laughs> I mean, have you heard of it? Um, I picked this up because I have I've only read A Tale of Two Cities. I really liked it. And I'm always like, oh, I'm going to read another one. And then I never do. But with the recent release of Demon Copperhead, which is by Babs Kingsolver, uh, which just <laughs> won the Pulitzer. Yeah. That's supposed to be loosely based on David Copperfield. And so I was like, here is my excuse to read first David Copperfield and then Demon Copperhead. I can't wait till this is chosen. Yeah, I know. Well, hopefully it's chosen before uh, Andrew's copy of Demon Copperhead is chosen. True that. And then the other book I bought is one I unashamedly saw on Book Talk, and I was intrigued. It's Animal by Lisa Tadeo, and it looks intense. And uh, the copy on the back begins, I am depraved. I hope you like me. Ooh. So. Creepy, that- creepy. Cool. Andrew, how's your shame? My shame is four strong. <laughs> rolling up like a smaller boy band. Um, <laughs> which one had four people in it? They mostly had five, didn't they? 98 Degrees, I think, had four. Yeah, 98 Degrees, exactly. All right, so rolling up like 98 Degrees, Nick Lachey. (laughs) Toby, cut that to make it seem like I did it right. Um, So, yeah, I bought um, four books from Greenlight Bookstore in Brooklyn, New York. I picked up, well, one that 
won't be read on the podcast because it's uh, a copy of Wild Seed, which has already been covered. But Toby oh. re-talking about Octavia E. Butler a bit last episode and how much he loved Wild Seed made me be like, mm, better check it out. Mm. Nice. I also picked up a copy of Central Places by Delia Tsai. Uh, I also bought a copy of The City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty, um, which is the mm. first and I believe a trilogy that's supposed to be good of adult fantasy. Don't know a lot about it, but I was mm, I'm sort of on a fantasy kick right now, so I figured... Hey, why not? I'm intrigued. And then finally, I finally was able to get to Greenlight, and this specifically was why I went to pick up a copy of Alondra by Gina Femia, which I've mentioned on the podcast before. Gina's my friend, and this is where the signed mm-hmm. copies were. Had to, had to do it to him, as they say. And had to get mm-hmm. the signed yeah. copy. Did not have to make anyone move a display this time. <laughs> <laughs> it was just out. Someone signed a book in the state of New York, and Andrew was there. <laughs> well, I don't have any shame besides the state of my voice. So... You're welcome. Oh, Shocking. wow. This illness has really been keeping you down. I know. Dylan, you've pulled yourself out of shame, which is that you finally watched the Pride and Prejudice movie. I did. Do you have any thoughts? Oh. Or I've read it before, so I didn't think I'd need to see the movie. How dare you? But it was very pretty. Which one, though, of the many? The Bridget Jones's Diary? Kara Knightley, 2005. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to say? You look like you're going to disappoint me. Disappoint us all, Dylan. If you say Matthew McFadden is not handsome, you can get right out. Well, we should have done it back to back. We should have watched Succession right after it. <laughs> you taught me that Matthew McFadden hadn't read the book before he played Mr. Darcy. We found wow. out that apparently in some behind the scenes interview, he said he hadn't read the book. He just was basing it off of the script. And we were joking that it's like, do you think he just doesn't know that Pride and Prejudice is based on a book? And he just thought that's like, wow, this is a really good script. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan, thumbs up, thumbs down. Did you I, like it? Oh, no. I give it a thumbs up. Full okay. alert. I knew everything that was going to happen. This is what I'm saying. It's mm-hmm, hard to mm-hmm. review. Well, what about the dream sequence when she's on the rocks? That's Stanage Edge in the in the Peak District. You can yeah. visit it. That wasn't in the books. Is that a dream <laughs> sequence? I thought she really did that. Well, I think she did, but it's like weirdly in a montage and you don't yeah. see her going up to the top of this rocks. And I can report that that's not an easy hike necessarily. Yeah. Andrew, is the... Um, the do not kiss statue, the one that she sees, that's his face? Yes, okay, that is. Gotcha. It is a very kissable statue. <laughs> For the very, very slim percentage of Pejos like me who have not seen this movie, I'm here for you. I'm just sitting here with you, listening. Wow. You shouldn't be here. You should go watch it as soon as we finish yeah. wrapping. It's great. Fair. Listen, we all doubted that <laughs> Kara Knightley could be Lizzie Bennett, but she did a great job. Did we doubt that? <laughs> I did. did we? Who doubted that? Me. There's there is another behind the scenes thing <laughs> that apparently the director didn't want to use her because he thought she was too attractive. That's to what play, I'm saying. To play um, Lizzie Bennett, but then he met her in real life and said, "Oh no, you're fine." Whoa. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, you know, we just talked about a historical novel that you know everybody in history loves. But like, is there any history that we should learn in general? Like maybe something Andrew read. Zinsane in the membrane. Zinsane. The brain. Yep. It's insanity, the, the trend that's sweeping the nation because I have read a book. Woo. Ooh, I channeled yes. my inner Timmy Chalamet. I smoked a clove at a coffee shop while Sir Sharon mm-hmm. looked on and I was a disappointing figure in her life. <laughs> Just kidding. Mm-hmm. But I did read A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. Zaddy mm. Zinn. I really wish I had saved my screaming of Zinsane in the membrane for right now. <laughs> it makes more sense now. So, uh, you might have heard about this book. In case anyone was wondering, that was a Ladybird reference also. Um, just so people don't think I'm insane. Um, Zinsane. Zinsane. So, <laughs> so, you might have heard about this book. You might have even read sections of it. But if you haven't, let me give you a little bit of context for this Howard Zinn. Findel drink that we're having here. <laughs> I'll stop. Um, so here's a little logline about People's History of the United States. Howard Zinn's bold work takes aim at a massive reframe of the accepted version of American history by focusing on the marginalized, the oppressed, the masses, instead of our common method of single individuals, facets of our history often relegated to footnotes or textbooks, if in the books at all come to the fore. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of the central conceit of the book. He is reframing it in his introduction. He's talking, he talks about how the like thesis of his book is, I'm going to go through American history up until the present, which this copy goes into about 2005, because it's a later edition where he's added some sections, and look at the point of view that don't get discussed. So from the indigenous people from Columbus's landing, from the like mill workers during the Industrial Revolution, instead of from the robber barons, that sort of thing. So a different lens to show another side of it and often that's showing sort of the more insidious side of the motivations 
foundations behind what we consider like our great moments in history. Bailey, I know you read this as well. I did. So jump in when you feel I've missed something or if you want to add, um, but I'm going to go right into sort of orcs and elves and discuss it. Uh, so first sort of in the, in the elf category, I would say it's fascinating to sort of have your understanding questioned. And while some of what this book like posits has sort of become common knowledge, I think part of it is that this book was one of the first ones that put it out there. It's hard to know like chicken or egg on this, but still there's a lot of things that have sort of become common knowledge, like Columbus was a bad dude, less than scrupulous handling of, of treaties with indigenous peoples. That sort of people know about that now. But this book was full of other surprises that were really interesting and like really surprising reframes of what you're thinking about. Thinking a lot about sort of the later sections where just like how blatant some of the motivations of some of the bad behavior was, was pretty surprising. <laughs> That's like a great part about the book. You're getting different angles. And just to give a little bit of history on this history book, it came out in 1980, 1981. Yeah. So, you know, the original publication of this would have been much more radical at the time. So, yeah, a lot of this stuff will be common knowledge to us. Yeah. I also want to call out just sort of his writing style. It's not necessarily like a laugh a minute or like the most like compelling all the time. However, I think he has a really clear way of laying out history that keeps it, you know, compelling without feeling too, too dry and without feeling like he's being neglectful in his research. So like those are the two ends of the spectrum there. Uh, it doesn't feel either like a, a textbook or like a novelization because it could go either way where he simplifies too much. He uses a lot of sources. He has definitely done his research. Research, but it doesn't feel like a trisket. Ah, uh, that means so dry. you're saying that the, uh, the the pull quote from you in like bold letters on the front would be quote dot 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 riotous dot 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 Andrew Massey. Trisket. If you wanted to, <laughs> I think yeah, trisket would be a better quote. <laughs> just the word trisket. <laughs> Not a trisket. Not a trisket. And like an, another just sort of overall elf here um, is that I'm just struck with how impressive of an undertaking this book is because it requires like a mastery, a fundamental mastery of the accepted version of history. And then a complete re-research, not just for one topic, but for topics from 1492 to 2005, which is what my, again, my copy goes to. And like complete re-research of other angles. Um, and so that's just a really cool undertaking. I want to call out a couple chapters that were standouts. And Bailey, I'd love for you to jump in here if you had some that were your like that were your favorites to read. Yeah. I mean, the Columbus one is, is a classic for a reason. I think that was my first experience with this book. Like, I think I read it in high school or something. Me like too. A, I have a distinct memory, speaking of like the history that you're taught, taking <laughs> self-call AP US history. And like, there's one point where like the teacher gave us that chapter and I was like, whoa, mind blown. This is serious. Wow. I'm rethinking everything. But yes, that was definitely the first chapter um, that I interacted with. And Bailey like put up her hand and was like, uh, what happens if I've already read it? And then she like, <laughs> threw it down on the ground. Um, yeah. So the Columbus chapter is a, is a standout, I think, for a reason. I think the sections that were about sort of westward expansion, manifest destiny and sort of just how like methodical a lot of that expansion was, at least as in frames it, were really interesting to me. And then I also really uh, enjoyed reading about the 70s and the Vietnam War also. That section was fascinating to me. Those are some, I think, standout chapters for me. How about you, Bale? You, it's interesting. It's funny because it's like we all have our favorite tracks on the album, you know, because like I liked those, but I really found Columbus interesting. I found the discussion of uh, slavery and enslaved people really interesting. And particularly, I was shocked, I think, is the right word. In the World War One chapter, I didn't realize how anti-war most people were during the war. Like I yeah. know of oh, yeah. all, all Quiet on the Western Front, like I know after the fact, but that was really interesting just to hear like people did not want to go to this war and it was for no reason. And Zinn makes it very clear. Uh, so yeah, no, I, I think those are my favorites. Yeah, I forgot about the World War One chapter. That one was a call out as well, just because yeah, you get the, the version of history you get on that is that, of course, everyone was really into it. And because you look back in, in history and I think we're, it's really colored by what happened next in terms of similar powers being our adversaries in World War II, not, not exactly the same. And then that war having a more direct moral quandary at the center of it. Yeah, but it, it, yeah, and it's just interesting to not focus on like Franz Ferdinand, but to focus on like somebody that's a conscientious objector. Like this is the obviously the thesis of the book, but it's like, it's, it's fun that the people that you might know from history, like the historical figures are kind of the side note versus the opposite. Yeah. So I, th I thought that was good. Yeah, for sure. I'm about to go into the orcs now. 
But Zinn, uh, to his credit, had gave a great afterword in it. I don't know if you read the afterword, Bailey, but yeah, I liked it. Kind yeah. of addresses some of my works, and I was like, okay, fair play, Zinn. But I'm still gonna say him. <laughs> so first of all, like an over any any more pros you want to throw into the the pros pile, Bailey? You referenced this, but I really loved not only like the number of sources that he consulted and referenced, but just the quotes that he chose. Like the primary texts were really excellent, and in some ways that makes it a faster read than you would necessarily think because. As you're, it's not just like dense text. It's sprinkled with these quotes from speeches or from songs or all these different things that I think made it more rich um, as you're reading. Yeah, for sure. So orcs, um, it does get a little bit uh, repetitive. <laughs> um, and it, it feels disrespectful because like all of the people he's talking about have like genuine plights and stuff. But in the fact that like cycles of history are cycles of history, they're by nature sort of repetitive. Andrew, are you saying that history repeats itself? <laughs> I know, right? Pull quote. Riotous, dot, dot, dot. History repeats itself, dot, dot, dot. Not a Trisket. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly the sections that focused on like labor, industrial revolution. I don't I don't want to sound glib, but like I got that the bosses were bad. <laughs> yeah, I think that was definitely the slowest part, Andrew, I agree. It, it sounds more like orcs about capitalism than orcs about the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it's tough to like separate that. But like, I mean, if you're, I'm reviewing the reading experience, like it's slowed down there for a little bit. <laughs> and also this is kind of Related to that, Andrew, like, it, I don't know if it's meant, I guess it is meant to be read in one big chunk, but sometimes it feels like it's meant to just just read the isolated chapters because he'll tell the same story more than one time. And I, get, I mean, he was a history professor, right? So he reminds me of the kind of professor that's like, and here's my favorite story about Sojourner Truth. And it's like, you told that last week. Moving on to another work, he's definitely got a point of view on the history. And I've seen some criticism that he's biased towards his sources. But he calls that out in his afterwards. His his justification is that, like every other source that at least was around during the time where he was writing this, was biased the other way. So he wanted to, like, do the opposite. And I think that that's definitely, like, a fair way of doing it. But it is, like, something to take as, as a grain of salt with when you read it. Like, other opinions are available, I guess is what I would say. That being said, I, like... I think that his version is closer to is definitely not like sanitized like the version that sometimes gets presented to us. So like I don't want to like harp on that too much, but like putting like the weight of historical fact on like people like kind of opinion quotes from like one source is maybe a little dubious. But I also think like I think his justification is fine, but it's just something to think about. I am not trying to be like all the reviewers that I've seen on Amazon of this book who are uh, if you can think about our sort of current political situation, very yeah. mean about this book. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I noticed it too. Like it's, I mean, it's very clear to me that he's a socialist and I'm fine with that. But basically near the end, it's kind of like, did you like any historical figure ever? <laughs> like no president can ever do it right at all, which I get. I mean, but it's, but it's like, well, then what are we supposed to do, Zinzadi? Come on. Yeah. And this, I think this actually feeds really well into my final work and the final thing I'll say, which is, cause it's not really a fair work, but we're sort of talking about it right now, which is, it's kind of just depressing, like, <laughs> especially the chapters closer to our modern times. It doesn't leave a lot of room for hope. And also like beyond that, this book again goes up to uh, George W. Bush's presidency, but not even to the end of it. And I think Zinn died in during Obama's presidency, like kind of early on into it. Things that have happened since then have not improved the things that he's talking about and complaining about. They are worse, in fact. So it's a little bit like, great, thank you. <laughs> I'm gonna go for a walk, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> um, um, I agree with what you said. I think one other thing that he highlighted in the afterward that I noticed as as I was reading through it is that there were some, although he's trying to represent a lot of voices, there's some voices he didn't represent as much. Like, he represents women and Native Americans really strongly, but not so much the queer community. Um, and, like, that's kind of just touched on. Also, the, the Latinx community, I kind of wish he were, he were still alive and could always could continually update it with more information and more chapters, because I thought those were kind of some empty spots. But, you know, on the whole, he presented information that hasn't otherwise been presented. So, yeah. 
No, good call out. This is what he gets for having on his cover, which is really cute and everything. But when you say 1492 to the present, it's like, and the present keeps changing. It's like, I need a year there. <laughs> mm. It did feel, in, and I guess this is similar, that in the end, it felt like he just kept tacking on a chapter. <laughs> it's like, it would be mm-hmm. like a very conclusive end. And then he'd be like, oh, yeah. Um, and then there was Clinton. Um, and then, yeah, uh, Bush. <laughs> but no, yeah, I, I overall, Andrew, I agree with everything that you said. Wait, don't spoil it. But is he pro or against the Iraq war? He's super pro. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I don't know what Bailey's going to put for her rating, but I'll call it four stars. I think it is maybe closer to a three and a half, but just sort of for the undertaking that it is, I'll give the extra half star here. I'll keep it on my shelf. Maybe I'll want to reread a chapter later on for some research and something. How about you, Bail? I will also give it four stars. Um, I'm very glad I read it. I don't read a lot of history and nonfiction. I got my copy because when I was teaching, I was hanging out a lot in the school library and there was a book club of history teachers and they invited me to be a part of it and they got free books <laughs> and copies of Ken Burns the Civil War Ooh. and they gave me this book and I was excited <laughs> and we think we talked about the Civil War chapters but then I was like guys I'm not a history teacher I can't do this um, <laughs> so anyways but it was good to have read just certain chapters and then to read the whole thing um, and I'm definitely going to keep it but on the whole is it a five star probably not so I'm, I'm going to go with four yeah nice the book four stars United States of America, one star. Yeah, right? <laughs> but yeah, cool. Toby, um, do you have any facts on Zaddy Zinn that we haven't covered yet? Oh, Zaddy Zinn. Yes, I do. This is one of those episodes where researching both authors has made me want to get up earlier in the morning and do something with my freaking life. Um, they both have very impressive lives. So Howard Zinn was born on August 24th, 1922, and he died on January 27th, 2010. He was an American historian, playwright, philosopher, socialist intellectual, and a World War II veteran. Over his career, he was the chair of the History and Social Sciences Department at Spelman College and then a political science professor at Boston University for a very long time. He wrote over 20 books, most notably his best-selling Influential, A People's History of the United States. And in case you are looking to get Maggie a copy, in 2007, he published a version of it for younger readers, which is called A Young People's History of the United States. So... There you go. I'm very curious to see how some of the chapters are presented. Yeah. (laughs) G is for genocide. Um, Exactly. Zinn has described himself as, quote, something of an anarchist, something of a socialist, maybe a democratic socialist. Shocking. Over his extremely long career, he wrote extensively about the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, and labor history of the United States. Some history. He was born to a Jewish immigrant family in Brooklyn, New York City in 1922. His parents met when they were workers at the same factory. He grew up during the Great Depression, and his father worked as a ditch digger and window cleaner. And for a brief time, his parents ran a neighborhood candy store together, but they never had very much money growing up. Both of his parents had very limited education when they got together, and there were no books or magazines um, in the apartments when they were raising their children. However, Mm -hmm. they introduced him to literature by sending 10 cents plus a coupon to the New York Post for each of the 20 volumes of Charles Dickens' collected works. Toby, Um, Toby, stop trying to bring it back to your Charles Dickens. And speaking of Charles Dickens. (laughs) It also sounds weird where it's like, we didn't have any books or magazines into the house, except for this collection of Charles Dickens. But that sounds like some books. I mean, they really went all in on Charles Dickens. <laughs> when he was growing up, Zinn made the acquaintance of several young communists in his Brooklyn neighborhood. Um, they invited him to a political rally that was being held in Times Square. It was a peaceful rally. However, mounted police charged the marchers, um, and Zinn himself was hit and knocked unconscious. Uh, this, as you might imagine, would have a profound impact on his political and social outlook for the rest of his life. He began his working life in the shipyards, um, did some work organizing unions, early unions in those shipyards, and eventually became convinced, um, although he was originally opposed, um, convinced of the righteousness of participating in World War II. So he eventually joined the United States Army Air Corps and uh, became an officer. He was assigned as a bombardier in the 490th Bombardment Group, and he bombed targets in Berlin, Czechoslovakia, and Hungary. That's just really interesting to me, considering how he presents the war and presents bombing in general. That's yeah, he really has cool. a very strong perspective on, on bombing and yeah. is not pro. Not, not pro. <laughs> well, here you go. You're about to learn why. As a bombardier, Zinn dropped napalm bombs in April 1945 on Royan, which is a seaside resort in western France. He later learned that this decision ended up killing thousands of French civilians and a very few 
small number of um, of German fighting troops. And due to his research and other people's research, it turned out that the decision to make this bombing raid was basically to advance the military careers of various people inside the U.S. military rather than a more strategic decision. So wow. uh, obviously that um, informed his opinion about that kind of thing. After World War II, he attended New York University on the GI Bill. And then at Columbia University, heard of it, <laughs> he got a PhD in history with a minor in political science. Ooh, fancy man. Fancy man. His master's thesis examined the Colorado coal strikes of 1914. Oh, I see where he put that research. There's <laughs> <laughs> a big chapter about those coal strikes. Yeah. Well, there we go. Um, he was a professor of history at Spelman College from 1956 to 1963. At the end of the academic year in 1963, he got fired from Spelman for insubordination. <gasps> yes. His dismissal came from the president of the college who felt that Zinn was radicalizing students. <laughs> He participated extensively in the civil rights movement while he accepted a position at Boston University. His classes on civil liberties were among the most popular at the university, with as many as 400 students subscribing each semester to the non-required class. And finally, I'll have a little quote here. This is from an interview with RazorCake.org. And the interviewer is Sean Carswell. Sean says, on book notes, you told the story of a teacher in California who was teaching your Columbus chapter from a people's history, and she got in a lot of trouble for it. She was investigated by the school board. Do you remember how the case was resolved? And I think this happened quite a bit um, when this book came out and was being used by teachers. Zinn answers, yes, I do. She wrote to me and said that they'd set up an investigative committee because a parent got excited when she read the first chapter of my book. The parent said that the teacher must be a communist. I mean, who else would say such a thing about Christopher Columbus, our hero? Brackets. Laughs. So the teacher wrote to me and said they'd set up this committee. Then sometimes later, she wrote to me and said, the committee has talked to the students and so on, and the committee has exonerated me. The students told the committee that she had not only used my book, but she used the standard text, and the students liked my book better than the standard text. So she was free and clear. So that's a pretty nice way for that to turn out. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yay. And, and that's Yay. Howard Sin. Well, that was, that's great. I... I recommend this book, especially if you're into history. And that is The People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. Four stars. Four stars. Zinn's sanity continues. Mm, well, Andrew really plowed through his review of that one. Bailey, did you experience any tilling any recently? Any fields that have obstructions in them? Did you oh. experience any plowing? <laughs> Toby, I have some bones to pick with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yes, I did read a book. I... <laughs> I read the book Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead by Olga Tokarczuk. So a little context about this book. Uh, this book won the Nobel Prize in 2018. It was uh, notable in that the Nobel Committee had taken a year off because of scandal. And then they came back and were like, OK, we're going to do the past two years now. Um, and this book <laughs> was the surprise one for 2018. And surprise in that, first of all, Central European writers, Tokarczuk is from Poland, aren't often celebrated in this way, but also surprised because mm -hmm. this is a genre novel. This is a, I guess, murder mystery, murder thriller, and it's only like 270 pages and it's translated. And who would think that that would be the Nobel Prize? When I think of Nobel Prize, I think of books that feel too smart for me, like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. This one, I'm like, I can handle that. So I was excited to read it. Nice. The book follows the point of view of an older woman. Um, she lives in a remote village in Poland on the border of the Czech Republic. Her name, it's kind of hard to say. I don't know how to say it. Bailey, having done the research for this author, there's a lot of hard names I'm in try. Poland. I'll just say that. The protagonist is named Mrs. Dujesko. I think that's how you pronounce it. Apologies if I have that wrong. And she is an older woman living in this village. She is pretty much written off by everybody in town. They don't pay attention to her. They think of her as kind of like the batty old woman that's always complaining about people hunting when they're not supposed to be hunting. Like, just go back to your house, woman. We're doing what we're doing. And it starts with her and her neighbor who she calls Oddball. She gives everybody nicknames, which helps if you can't read Polish names. She and Oddball come upon their neighbor and he has died in this horrifying way. And they think maybe he's been murdered. It looks like he's been choked or maybe he choked on a bone. Unclear. But in the investigation mm. or in them finding the body and between finding it and the police getting there, they look around 
and Mrs. Dujensko discovers something that then changes everything. <gasps> From there, more and more people start dying in these very strange ways. And she happens to be on the scene a lot of the times or she hears about it and she starts investigating who could be the killer. And in her mind, she thinks perhaps it could be the animals fighting back from the mm. poachers and the hunters mm. in the area. So how similar to the number one ladies detective agency is this book? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's obviously not similar at all, but it, the closest book I've, re I've read to it is um, Everybody Knows Your Mother is a Witch in that it has this really dark humor to it as well. Just the perspective of our ornery main character, mm -hmm. plus just like the ridiculousness that's happening, plus the serious darkness makes for this kind of dark humor. An example of the humor also is that our protagonist is, is, is obsessed with astrology. That's what she does in her free time. And so she constantly is trying to find people's date and place of birth so she can figure out their star chart. And from there, determine hmm. their personality, but also how they're going to die. She thinks she can predict the way, hmm. uh, the date of one's death from your star chart. I mean, you can. So I'd just like to make that clear. <laughs> and we're about to do it for you, Pedro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I will do my best to read a quote related to that so you can get a sense of her writing as well. Obviously, the book has been translated from Polish, so it's hard to know exactly what it would sound like in the native language. But I think the way that it's translated makes me think that the writing is very strong and very unique. So she's talking about being an astrologer, page 59. I must be very careful. Now I shall dare to say this. I'm not a good astrologer, unfortunately. There's a flaw in my character that obscures the image of the distribution of the planets. I look at them through my fear, and despite the semblance of cheerfulness that people naively and ingenuously ascribe to me, I see everything as if in a dark mirror, as if through smoked glass. I view the world in the same way as others look at the sun in eclipse. Thus, I see the earth in eclipse. I see us moving about blindly in eternal gloom, like maybugs trapped in a box by a cruel child. It's easy to harm and injure us, to smash up our intricately assembled bizarre existence. I interpret everything as abnormal, terrible, and threatening. I see nothing but catastrophes. But as the fall is the beginning, can we possibly fail even lower? In any case, I know the date of my own death and that lets me feel free. Oh, wow. Whoa, that's great. I'm kind of exploring the elves as I go, but these are all really strong aspects of the book. I also learned a lot about Poland and what it was like to, there's this strong sense of history and trying to find identity as a Polish person and the discussion of borders and this sort of thing that, that comes into play, which you wouldn't necessarily expect in a novel about a serial killer, um, <laughs> which was very interesting. It's a quick read. It's short. I read it really fast. And another thing that was interesting was the character enjoys translating William Blake poetry. The title is from a Blake poem. It was interesting to see characters studying English in the way that we would study a foreign language. And that's kind of silly, but like she also, she's yeah. like a teacher, you know, and a student of English, which I thought was interesting to be in that perspective. This book sounds awesome. Yeah, I really enjoyed this book. I really recommend it. My one quibble is that near the end, things start to move really quickly. And I kind of wanted to stay in that spot a little bit more versus the beginning is a bit slower to get going. So I wish it were a mm. little bit better paced. But, you know, I can't complain because I read it really quickly. And like there was a point where Dylan came in to talk to me. I'm like, you can't talk to me. I'm at I'm at a yeah. very important moment. I think I know who the killer is, you know. Um, but yeah, it's just so fascinating to me that this book won the Nobel Prize. You wouldn't have thought it, but, you know, I'm all for it. I support it. I recommend reading it. And I'm going to give the book four stars. Ooh. Ooh. Nice. So that's two down on your goal of reading all the Nobel Prize winning books? Oh, I never could. I, if, if all the Nobel Prize <laughs> books were like this, I could read them all. But they're not all like this. Toby, do you have any facts on Olga Tokarczuk? Yes, I do. Olga Tokarczuk was born the 29th of January in 1960. She is a Polish writer, activist, and public intellectual. She is one of the most critically acclaimed and successful authors of her generation in Poland. As Bailey mentioned in 2019, she was awarded the 2018 Nobel Prize in Literature, and she was the first female Polish prose writer to win it. And it was awarded her for, quote, a narrative imagination that with encyclopedic passion represents the crossing of boundaries as a form of life. Agree, Bailey? Yeah. Boundaries, both literal, metaphorical, ecological. Yeah. yeah. Mm. 
She's also had quite a few other accolades, notably uh, for her novel Flights. She was awarded the 2018 Man Booker Prize. Her other books include Primeal and Other Times, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, and The Books of Jacob, which is known as her magnum opus. I think it's quite a long work that was just recently translated into English. Mm. Um, she studied psychology at the University of Warsaw. She has published collections of poems, novels, and other shorter prose works in many collections. Her works have been translated into almost 40 languages, um, which makes her one of the most translated contemporary Polish writers. The Books of Jacob, which I mentioned earlier, was released in 2021, and it took seven years of translation work to complete it. Wow. It's interesting to think like, oh, this one, you know, very recently won the Nobel Prize, but it actually was written a lot longer before. It just hadn't been translated to English yet. It kind of makes you think like just how standout your work has to be to, you know, it's a shame that this stuff is often overlooked in translating efforts, but you just know how like knock your socks off good the writing must be to get translated in these ways. Yeah, it just makes me think, what else are we missing that hasn't been translated? You yeah. Know? The rest of this is from an interview with the Brooklyn Library. Um, and the interviewer is Isabella Joanna Berry. <laughs> Heard of it. Barry asks, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead is your latest novel. This obviously took place in the past. It's a long title borrowed from Blake. It's ambiguous and long, unusual for a novel. Did the publisher protest it? Good question. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is, of course they protested. <laughs> Mainly because the promotion specialists, who think that they know what will sell, have a big role in publishing today. They were the ones who claimed that such a long title wouldn't encourage readers, that it would be difficult to remember, that it sounded bad. But I insisted, and my publisher gives their authors a lot of freedom to decide on various matters. And so there was a discussion. I came up with a title thinking about the old Polish detective stories, like Joe Alex, where the titles were sometimes taken from a verse or a poem or a nursery rhyme. Agatha Christie did it, too. So I thought that that was a way for me to refer to the tradition of titling mysteries. Because this book is a mystery in a way, I really wanted it to stay that way. It turned out that the readers call the book Plow, and they're <laughs> even buying it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think that it's a dope title. I was going to say, like, yeah, the too. title makes me want to read it more. So Heavy metal. Mm -hmm. Guar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she continues to answer, When I finished Flights, I wanted to write a simple book and just sink into the pleasure of constructing a traditional linear narrative. And that's how I designed this book. It's supposed to be a mystery, but not one that's only limited to a whodunit. It seemed to me that writing a purely entertainment mystery was maybe a waste of paper. <laughs> I have an atavistic belief that books are not there just to entertain the reader, but to give them a reason to reflect, to discover something, to be moved. Since I'm very interested in the issue of animals, hunting, and vegetarianism, I wove the mystery between these topics. Yeah, vegetarianism is a big part of it. It did make me kind of want to be a vegetarian a little bit. Barry asks, in this book, there is knowledge about hunting customs, animal habits. Someone even called it an ecological novel. The protagonist is also into astrology. Did you need to do special research on this subject or are you, as I believe, well and long acquainted with the subject? Olga answers, I put astrology into the book a bit out of spite. And with full consideration, I wanted to create a character who would contest generally accepted customs with her whole person. I don't know what it's like in the United States, but in Poland, astrology is a pseudoscience worthy of ridicule and contempt. Well, the intellectual establishment neither values nor is interested in it. It's considered to be the delusion of old women or hysterical girls. It's part of the newspaper culture. Because I was creating a character who was supposed to be a bit rebellious, even as an older person, I gave her the astrology to annoy all those who treat astrology as something as silly and frivolous. My own personal attitude towards astrology, it's a very old science, or rather art, that was the first to construct a typology of people expressed in the signs of the zodiac. It contributed to thinking in terms of personality categories or human temperament. I think that every modern educated person should be familiar with a basic astrological vocabulary, and I think it's good that people are familiar with the tropes that astrology uses. Of course, I don't have a lot of respect for newspaper astrology or writing horoscopes based on the position of the sun, but as an enormous field of knowledge built over thousands of years, it's something that impresses me. In astrology, we also have a kind of history of the pre-scientific approach to phenomena, something that existed before science. That's great. That's really yeah, good so. context. Yeah. As per usual, when you interview like Nobel Prize winning authors, they give like very interesting and <laughs> well-spoken answers. Wow. It's almost like they're smart cookies or some crud. <laughs> well, speaking of smart things, she says, uh, the final question, the final fact I have for you here, Barry asks, are you a vegetarian? <laughs> and Olga answers, I am. My child is a vegetarian. I was vegetarian when I was pregnant. My son is a healthy, strong, tall man. <laughs> <laughs>
So you can be tall and vegetarian. I have wondered yeah, my boy. <laughs> it's true. It's true. She says, there is a growing awareness that we do not need to eat meat and that it is worth investigating the process. Perhaps it's worth including a reflection on such an important topic in a children's book. So Uh-oh. maybe a hint of Olga's future. Drive your toy <laughs> trucks over the bones of the dead. <laughs> <laughs> that is Olga Tokarchuk, and I'm really interested in reading this book now. I hope you guys like it. Um, I certainly did. So that is... Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead by Olga Tokarczyk. Four stars. Four stars. Guys, 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 guys. I'm really excited. What? Why? So This is when I do a game. What could you be excited about? Well, I have never done a game before on our podcast. We're like, what, four years in? And I've never done a game, uh-huh. but I had an idea for a game, and I asked Andrew if I could do it, and he said I could. So I went maybe a little above and beyond and maybe tapped into like my previous life as a teacher in creating this very elaborate game. So I have a game for everyone. My game is called Zin Zany Zodiac. (laughs) Ta-da! The protagonist of Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead firmly believes that your astrological sign determines your true personality. Howard Zinn firmly believes that your history textbook does not determine the true personality of American leaders. In this game, you will match historical figures with their zodiac signs. So what I did ahead of time, Pejos, is I sent the boys a collection of all 12 zodiac signs with little descriptions because I don't think any of them are astrologers. I mean, I could be wrong. It's a very Capricorn thing of you to think. (laughs) Topi does call me all the time and say that he knows the day I'm going to die, but I think that's unrelated. That's different. That's a different science. It's a private science. I also want to say, Bailey, I want you to do more games just so you can say, I sent it to the boys. To the boys. It's a fun thing to say. I sent it to the boys. And I also sent descriptions of 12 historical figures from American history. They all happen to be men. Men that you might have read about in your history textbook, but maybe you didn't know too much about until you read people's history. So I included the years of their life, um, a description of their accomplishments according to Encyclopedia Britannica Online, and then a fiery quote from Howard Zinn about them from the book. So I don't want to read them all over here because obviously my voice is terrible and it would take a long time. So I'll have Dylan read the 12 names and then I'm on Instagram. I'll post all of this too if you want to play along. Okay. So the zodiac signs, we all know the zodiac signs of Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Leo, Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces. The historical figures, the 12 we have, are Christopher Columbus, Thomas Jefferson, John Jacob Astor, Abraham Lincoln, W.E.B. Du Bois. Like I put a little French spin on that. It's the boys, du- though. It's the boys. Uh, Upton Sinclair. <laughs> Just Fiero, like us. Fiero LaGuardia. That's a name I have never had to say out loud. I've only read before. Marcus Garvey, Richard Nixon, John F. Kennedy, Jimmy Carter, and Malcolm X. So those are our 12 people, and each person corresponds with one zodiac sign. And you might say, Bailey, this is a pseudoscience, but there's a definitive answer because we know the day they were born. So we know what zodiac sign (laughs) they are. The boys, the boys have already come up with their answers, their matching choices. Is that correct? Yes. 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 I'm going to choose ones at random and ask you guys your thoughts. You will debate and I will tell you who is right and who is wrong. We're going to put all of the answers and all the people and questions on our Instagram if you want to play along. I'm going to start with, hmm, let's see. I'll just say real quick, before you jump in there, um, I I did a, a, a little bit of like teaching in my past and my wife will tell me when teacher Toby comes out because I assume <laughs> a certain voice and I'm hearing teacher Bailey very clearly right now. Oh, this, this is teacher Bailey, 100%. I love a good worksheet. I'm going to start with Gemini. Gemini. Okay, good. I feel good about this one. Gemini okay. is okay. May 21st through June 20th. Those are the birthdays. The positive traits, curious, skillful, humorous, seductive, imaginative, negative traits, impractical, restless, careless. Which historical figure did you guys think was a Gemini? All right. I think it's JFK. Ah. And I based it solely on the fact that seductive was in the word. Yeah, me too. Me too. (laughs) Ah! Uh, Yeah, and also the humorous one I was trying to think of, like, all these guys are bummers and JFK is like, I guess, the most humorous of them. He had a funny voice. Well, guys... You're all correct. Yeah. The boys. John F. Kennedy was born May 29th, 1917. He is a Gemini. 
Nice. I will say if Seductive was not in there, I don't think I would have gotten it. So that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Let's go with Aquarius. Aquarius, January 20th through February 18th. Humanitarian, trustworthy, independent, logical, negative attributes, detached, indifferent, rebellious. Who did you guys think was in Aquarius? I put Marcus Garvey. Oh, that's a good call. Yeah, because like he does have like good intentions and humanitarians, but then also he had a lot of, a lot of impractical stuff that he had to work with. And can you share who Marcus Garvey is with the class? No, don't make me do this. <laughs> Marcus Garvey was a charismatic black leader who organized the first American black nationalist movement and based in Harlem. I will say that I put Upton Sinclair Ooh. as Aquarius. I would say his journalism was humanitarian in a way. He was known as, you know, at least partially as a trustworthy individual, a reporter. Logical, certainly. He got to the truth. But um, I think he was also known as a bit of a cold fish. So, you know, detached and indifferent. I said Abraham Lincoln. Um, Ooh. And I said it basically because the word rebellious was in, in the thing. And he was president during the Civil War where there was a rebellion. And I was sort of scraping. <laughs> a lot of my decisions were based on a single word, if you're not getting that. <laughs> this is the part of the game when Bailey tells us that none of us are right. Yeah, no, one of it. you is right. <gasps> one of you Ooh, is right. Is it me? Um, the answer is... Abraham Lincoln. No. Yes. Oh, Abraham Daniel Lincoln Day was, Lewis. <laughs> he was born February 12, 1809. He is an Aquarius. Two for two, Andrew. Are, are you going to become a Zodiac man after this? I cannot overstate the fact that I am so sure that all 10 of the other ones are wrong because this has got to be just. <laughs> <laughs> what is the Zodiac sign for self-doubt? Pisces. Which is actually my second sign. Oh. Uh, okay. What about Libra. Libra is September 23rd to October 22nd. Um, The positive attributes, fair, wise, helpful, friendly, desire for equilibrium. Negative attributes, superficial, are perceived as indifferent. Who did you guys think was a Libra? I put Jimmy Carter for that one. Just because, but it's like some, like he wasn't really superficial, but I think he just didn't understand like a lot of like the negative things. And he kind of just assumed that people were great and they were not great. Yeah, I'll jump on it because I had Jimmy Carter as well. And it was based on how he's presented in the book, which is like he had this big face of like, I'm doing all this stuff, but ultimately didn't actually like sort of walk the walk on a lot of the things he was like, we now think he stands for, at least while he was president. But he does seem friendly. He's just a simple peanut farmer. I have strong reasons, which is I put Marcus Garvey because I had nowhere else to put him. And I also didn't really understand this uh, Zodiac sign. So take him. (laughs) Well... The answer is Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Are you Wait, serious? No. Whoa. Yeah. Three for three. Jimmy Carter was Andrew. born October 1st, 1924. He is a Libra. Andrew got three for three. Um, Andrew, you are an astrology and history master. I can't believe it. So let's just wow. see. Andrew clearly won the game, although Dylan, you did a good job. Toby, you know, you did a one out of three job. Um <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Which for Let's this game see. is actually qu- getting an answer correct is honestly pretty good. Pretty yeah. good. I will read the key. Yep. You guys tell me how you did. Play along at home if you want. Okay. Aries is Thomas Jefferson. Yes. That is my first incorrect. Nope. Nope. Taurus. The answer for Taurus is Malcolm X. Ah. That's my heart. Ah. Um, nope. nope. Cancer. Cancer is John Jacob Astor. Okay. Ooh, Richard Nixon because I just want to say Richard Nixon is cancer. <laughs> Nope. Leo. Leo is Marcus Garvey. Ugh. That's where he is. Nope. So far, it seems like the only ones Andrew got correct were the ones I happened to choose. Okay. Uh, Virgo. The answer for Virgo is Upton Sinclair. Ugh, but. Nope. The answer for Scorpio is Christopher Columbus. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, that, Ugh, yeah, I was, no. about, I was like, well, that's Columbus Day, right? Well, yeah, you might know yeah. what Columbus Day is, but also I think it fits with him. Yeah, Emotional, it is like the intense, meanest determined. one, according to the yeah, list you provided, jealous, at least. <laughs> unforgiving, yeah. Who, who does Howard Zinn hate the most? <laughs> Sagittarius. The answer is Ferrello LaGuardia. LaGuardia. Mm, I guess Du Bois. I, yeah. got, I guess Du Bois there, too. I was all up on um, the Upton Sinclair for that. Capricorn. The answer is Richard Nixon. Uh, um, no. Cappy. Pisces is W.E.B. Du Bois. Yes, yes, yes. That is five correct total for me. Five correct total. Dylan has four correct total. Four correct total, yeah. How many did you get? I have one correct total. (laughs) 
<laughs> but at least it was during the official game, Toby. That's true. That's true. All right. All this to say, Andrew, good job. And also good job, me, for randomly picking the ones that you happen to get right. So. There you go. And that was Zin Zany Zodiac. Good game. Amazing game, Bailey. Yeah. Elaborate. I like it. I'm intimidated by you <laughs> as a future game master. <laughs> okay, well, now it's Dylan's time to shine. It's time for Dylan to choose books at random from our shelf to read next. It's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. I will say that um, our next episode is a very special episode in that we are having a friend of the podcast and an author, Lizzie Ives, her book Fat Witch Summer comes out, I think the day before that episode releases. So I'm going to be reading that book and we're going to be interviewing her and she's going to be part of the game. So that will be my book and we'll then choose in the next book after that episode. But I'm dying to know what's Andrew's book. Mm. 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 Yes, because... (laughs) Yes, because, you know, you always have to support your wife, uh, especially, you know, if you're competing with a bunch of other uh, guys that are also married to her. I mean, the other one, two, maybe even six other husbands when you're one of the number 51, the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. It took a second, but you got there. Yeah, Yeah, no, that's exciting. (laughs) I will say listening to you introduce these is always like waiting for a rock to hit you on the head. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I'm. But I'm I'm very excited about this. It should be fun. It is not a 700-page dense history book, so I can't complain. I've read this book and it is very fun. I really like this one. And I loved and I loved Daisy Jones and the Six as we we covered that as a group book. I have this one on my <laughs> list too, Andrew. So I'll read it with you. All right, so in two weeks on the podcast, I will be reading Fat Witch Summer by Lizzie Ives, and Toby will be reading The Streets of Laredo by Larry McMurtry. That's right. Yee-haw. Yee-haw. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List Podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. Yes, and if you keep finding mysterious dead bodies in your neighborhood, don't touch them. Instead, take out your phone and uh, rate us five stars on your podcatcher of choice. It's always a smart idea not to get your fingerprints or DNA on something that could be a crime scene. And we really appreciate it. It helps us rise in the charts. And if you are a historical figure surrounded by other historical figures whose reputation might not be quite what we think they are based on uh, our normal classroom studies, or if you're just surrounded by people, recommend this podcast <laughs> to a friend, to a family member to the presidents of the United States. And uh, this word of mouth is our best way of finding uh, new listeners, and it would really help us a lot. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, 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 books. books. My name is Bailey. I love books and farts in that order.